This program is brought to you by The In Network, the place for eye-opening, thought-provoking content produced through an Ignatian lens. The In Network is produced by Loyola Productions, the American Jesuit multimedia company. Visit theinnetwork.org for more. We're so much more alike than we're different, even Dick Cheney. And I have always said, I would wash Dick Cheney's feet because Jesus told me to, yeah. and he would wash mine. But at the same time, it's gonna be a little tense, you know? <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to the Jesuit Rec Room Podcast. Today, actor-turned-Jesuit priest, Father Radmar Howe, and Jesuit Post co-founder, Father Eric Sundrup, are joined by New York Times bestselling author Anne Lamott and her close friend and frequent character from her books, Father Tom Weston, for an irreverent and poignant discussion about forgiveness, living with faith and fear, and why desperation and exhaustion can be huge blessings. Also discussed is Anne's journey from atheism to Christianity, Anne and Tom's work in 12-step recovery, and of course, Pope Francis. Here is Anne Lamott. I mean, Tom and I, against all odds, are like perfect travelers, although I always want him to walk a lot more, and he always wants me to um, Take talk a lot less. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, so clearly you, you write about your relationship with Tom a lot in your books, right? Do you usually read it first? No. You don't? Well, I occasionally um, um, I get a, a, a chance to look at it first, uh -huh. and then I might make a few suggestions. That's not my... Oh, sense of things. But, <laughs> what is your uh, sense of things? My sense of things is I almost always send him an email. That's right. And um, I send, you know, I send him um, stuff that where he's not in it too. I send him um, uh, essays or or pe little pieces that I think he would like or that would be, for lack of a better word, sort of nourishing or make him laugh. But if he's going to be in a piece, I will send it to him. When you write, do you have an aud your audience in mind, or you just kind of write your stories? Uh, I don't have my audience in mind, although um, I do have internal critics, like all writers do. You know, I have um, the voices inside me um, that don't think I'm that good, or that think I'm beating a dead horse, or that think it's not actually funny, or that they, or they think it's actually like repellent, and that no one <laughs> except for Tom will think it's funny. <laughs> and um, so I have a lot of critical voices inside of me. But um, you know what, I've been doing this for 40 years and I know a good story. When something happens, I know it's a good story and, and uh, enough to, I've tried enough times to make a story into something that it really can't even agree to be, that I don't waste my time on that. But I know what the people who like my books really like and I'm really interested in that. I'm really interested in spirituality. I'm really interested in God and Jesus and Mary and, and nature and reality. and. Um, the it always been, or was that something that developed? I always knew there was a God. You know, if you've read my stuff, you know my parents were atheists and that we didn't talk about it or read about it. My grandfather was a minister, and, and of course the, the, the family position was that we had contempt for believers because it was like believing in pyramid power or something. But I always believed in God, and I always found religious friends. I had a best friend who actually was hiking with this morning, who was Christian science, and I had a best friend who was Catholic. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be where their parents were. I wanted to go to, to Mass with Peggy, and although she used to tell me late at night that I would rot in hell for all eternity because I wasn't a Catholic. But um, that was when I first learned to Hail Mary, too. It was late at night. She taught me to hail Mary, but that if I hailed Mary, I'd probably go to hell even faster since I could not be sincere since I was not a believer, a Catholic. I always felt the presence of God. I always felt someone was listening if I said, hello. And that's how, to this day, I tell people to bring in prayer, say hello. 
I went to college outside of Baltimore for a couple of years and I took a lot of religion and philosophy and I had a spiritual experience as a result of this tiny little Jewish Czechoslovakian professor, Eva Gossman, who took us through um, Fear and Trembling mm. by Kierkegaard. And I understood the leap of faith. I understood Abram um, being willing to do what God wanted, although it was so barbaric because without God to turn to, he was doomed anyway, and Isaac was doomed anyway, so it actually didn't matter. And I made the leap of faith. I went, I don't know what I'm even doing, but I'm in. So you never had like a road to Damascus moment, right? It was just kind of like, no, I'm just that, gonna do That it. was a kind of a little red wagon road to Damascus <laughs> experience because I left the room that, at Goucher um, a different person than I, I, was, I was in. And I didn't even know what that meant. I did, as I wrote in Traveling Mercies, have a very direct experience of Jesus when I was still drinking. But I turned to the wall and said I would rather die. But I felt him as clearly as, as I feel either of you here. I was living on a houseboat that was about the size of this carpet, but with a sleeping loft for that added hint of elegance. And um, <laughs> I had been through a traumatic experience and I had been going to this funny little church that was more black than white at the um, huge uh, flea market every Sunday at Marin City, which is a, a place that's almost all black with six church, 2,000 people in six churches, so it's pretty vibrationally um, attuned to the spirit. I used to go over there because I was hungover, and I would um, sit in the church because I recognized a lot of songs from... Um, the civil rights movement, because my parents had both been really involved, like all the Odetta and Pete Seeger and Joan Baez and the Weaver songs, you know, the communist <laughs> wing. And, um, and I loved those, and, I, and, and the people there didn't hassle me. They didn't try to get me to come back. They didn't um, try to get me to want to know more. I didn't want Jesus. I was committed to not being a Christian. <laughs> That was my path. One day I had had a traumatic experience. I was in my bedroom um, trying to fall asleep, drunk and awake, and I felt Jesus hunkered down in that corner over there. Like my father used to kind of hunker down in our rooms if we were having nightmares. And I saw him. I just felt him and saw him and, and, um, and looked for a while, and then I just turned over and said, I would rather die. Hmm. And then he was gone. And then in the morning, I got up and, um, you know, thought, I'm losing my mind, I'm losing my mind, I'm having a breakdown. And then that didn't happen again. But then I started staying for the um, sermon, and I, I started reading Malcolm Muggeridge. And he had been... A little cranky. Very cranky BBC English mm -hmm. guy who had been um, a, a hero of my father's, but a passionate atheist who became a passionate Catholic. And he wrote a book called Re Jesus Rediscovered. And it was essays. He'd done a BBC piece about the um, Holy Land, and he'd done a piece, the very famous piece of um, something beautiful for God about Mother Teresa when no one knew about. He'd gone to Delhi. And so it was like scripts from BBC and some short pieces. And he was so crabby and awful and funny. And that really helped me a lot. I felt like I could breathe again. It wasn't like that you know, deadly earnestness, you know, spare me the deadly earnestness. But Matt Muggeridge and also C.S. Lewis, because he had a great sense of humor, also really helped me a lot. And I just started, my heart started softening towards Jesus, and I just started to feel him, but not in a visual and, um, you know, kind of a, a energetic way where I, I just feel like 
I, could, I know this sounds kind of crazy, but I felt a little bit like he was after me. But m more like, not like the hounds of heaven, but more like a little feral cat that's gotten its sights on you, you know? Because if you feed a feral cat even once, it's no longer a feral cat. Mm -hmm. It's now your cat, right? right? right. <laughs> and so I didn't want to feed it. And then finally, and it's the worst swear word that I said at my moment where I, gave, I surrendered. I didn't have a beautiful moment where the clouds open up and the, and the choir of 900 people on the stage swaying suddenly burst into song. I said, oh, F it. <laughs> I just said, I'm done. And I kind of, and I still sometimes say to God in, in, in like the fourth great prayer, I say, what? You know, sort of bitterly because I'm exhausted. And Tom and I have talked a lot over the years about how important exhaustion is mm -hmm. to the spiritual walk, you yeah. know, and to accepting grace, to being, to being available for grace. It's just to say, what? Everything else has worn you out. I've tried everything. I'm, I hate everyone. <laughs> and it's, I don't believe in much, but what? And then I think God goes, right on. Yeah. You know, and then and the, the phone the rings, yeah, and yeah, yeah the phone rings, the mail comes, or the door opens, or you trip and sprain your ankle, you know? Yeah. Well, do you think it's necessary to sort of hit rock bottom or hit that place before you even start to believe? Eric and I work with young people all the time, right? He works at a campus ministry, I work with young adults in LA, and oftentimes it's like, you know, I'm fine, I don't need. If you're beautiful and smart and energetic and lucky, you can think about yourself a lot. When you crash and burn, you have to think about something else. Annie and I both are pretty much in the world of recovery and recovery begins with the crashing and the burning. You know, how, how can I get your attention? Um, uh, when you're no longer so completely delighted with yourself all the time. If you have run out of good ideas, then that's, you know, surrender. If you have older brothers, you grow up thinking surrender means you're going to get your face rubbed in the dirt and you're going to get hit. But for, uh, for our experience, I think, with everyone that we've loved or known that has gotten um, sober um, or off whatever their addiction was, it begins with running out of good ideas. It, it, it begins with this pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization with your best efforts. Yeah. And then you say the first great prayer, which is help. And most great literature, most great yeah. plays, most great um, everything begin with somebody who has driven him or herself to the very point of suicide with good ideas. Mm -hmm. And one more good idea, one more way that you might be able to break the code so you can keep drinking or keep having affairs or keep doing this or whatever, and then finally you run out. If, if folks have a little bit of recovery, you know, so you, you, you started to be able to breathe again, uh, you look back on that and you can see it as the gift of desperation. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and, and when you're desperate enough, the asking for help you realize you cannot survive as a self-contained, self-obsessed unit, mm -hmm. you know, and you start asking for help. And sometimes we ask for help with conditions, you know, like I only want to ask for help from smart people or from cute people. But if you're really desperate, you'll climb into the boat regardless of who else is there. Mm. And it changes everything. It changes uh -huh. everything.
Tom and I have done a talk probably five times now called um, The Bright Side of Desperation. <laughs> because for me, um, and I think for Tom also, almost everything good and enduring has come from really being exhausted by self, really being exhausted by that clenched fist of trying to figure it out. You know, figure it out is not a good slogan. And young people know more than they're ever gonna know again. Mm -hmm. You get a little older and life just smacks you around and there are unsurvivable losses and things don't make sense at all or else they make sense briefly and there's just this crazy mixed grill of beautiful and, and spiritual, lovely, and um, nightmarish, and Baltimore, and Nepal, and tragedy, and, and, and the blessings, and, and, um, and, and you know less and less. You kind of begin to get a, a better sense of humor about yourself. And, um, but when you're desperate, you become teachable, and, um, and you become receptive. Hmm. Yeah. And you also realize that hell is being stuck in your own mind, in the, in, in the I, self, me, and in this trapped little container of, you know, Pema Chodron, the wonderful Buddhist monk, has a book, the title is The Wisdom of No Escape. And, and, um, and, and the wisdom of knowing there's no way out, you are going to die, how are you going to live in the face of that? Well, maybe sit down, maybe have a glass of water and breathe. Maybe that's what heaven would be like, to have a glass of cool water and to just stop. Yeah. You know, and, um, and, and, and you realize that heaven will be about somehow hooking into something so much bigger than your own scared little thinky self, you know, and it's something more to do with the breath or the rhythm of, of something bigger and, and lovelier. There's that, that hymn, and I, I, I usually don't sing because I can't, uh, and I also, I can't remember lyrics. Uh, unless Other than that, unless, put, them unless, on, unless, put them on stage. Broadway show tunes is different, yeah. I can do those for a little, but one is that, that shepherd me, O oh God, beyond my wants. Yeah. Once beyond my fears from death into life. It's that yeah. journey. That, that um, vibrates me when right. I hear that because right. I think that's the, the path. And we don't have to do this alone. There's a community of people who participate in this. And it's not just uh, you and me against the world. I mean, it's, it's uh, Mary Oliver has a, a poem called The Journey and she talks about joining the world, getting out of the isolation and joining the world. And almost any addiction or obsession worth its salt leaves you isolated and self-obsessed and frantic. So getting out of that is to start saying hello to the most unlikely people. Yeah. You know? And you start going, oh my God, I'm caught by surprise again. This is someone I, I couldn't even have looked at before, and I'm listening to them carefully. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful way to change. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful way to change. My hope is almost always to feel better as soon as possible. And, and then the hope then is that I'll feel mildly euphoric. <laughs> but you know, people call me and they're depressed and they're fixated. And I say, go to the health food store and flirt with all the old people, then call me back. And it wrecks, it wrecks their um, obsession and their fixation because they get happy, because they get the spirit in them, they get some flow going. They get out of themselves when they become a person for others, and that's what heaven is like. You worry a lot, but you also have a lot of faith, yeah. right? This whole idea of, um, you know, I found Jesus, 
life is going to be great. Mm-hmm. Now that not, now, now everything's going to be perfect. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I don't have to worry about this, that, or the other thing anymore. And, and if it doesn't, then that wasn't Jesus or I, I'm going right. to give up my faith. Right. I, I, I can't believe it doesn't, mm-hmm. doesn't work for me. You know? mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you work with that tension or that paradox? Well, it's universal. That's yeah. a human condition that we're all incredibly screwed up and neurotic. And, and life is hard. And life is hard and we're very, very, very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people like to go around saying, um, you can't have faith and fear at the same time. But, you know, God doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says what Tom always says, which is, have you eaten? Mm-hmm. You know, you're all driving me crazy. Let's eat. <laughs> and, and later, maybe we'll go for a walk. Yeah. But um, that, to me, is not true, that you can't have faith and fear. My experience is I came this way. You know, God made me this way. I have um, certain mental conditions and I have certain ways that I survived being a child around alcoholism and they have to do with a lot of anxiety and I don't think it up, I don't, um, I'm not an anxiety monger, I'm just a scared person. I came here as a pretty worried person and yet I have a hundred percent, hundred percent faith that Jesus is true and, and that we're on one side of eternity but that, you know, that the soul is immortal. and. Um, and it, it's not like I have to struggle with uh, the tension, but you know, my pastor has a great way of looking at it. She talks about the dual citizenship hmm. and that, that, that we're, we're children of, of the covenant. You know, we're, we're, I'm the perfect daughter of God and I'm made out of, you know, Einstein said there's only one thing you could be made out of. The only thing, one thing Jesus could have been made out of, it's energy. Yeah. And if you're a believer, you have this kind of sense of a love energy or a, some sort of divine intelligence. It's so beyond anything I could articulate. But at the same time, you know that that's the truth of your spiritual identity is that you are, are God's beloved and um, with a capital B, and then you're also here, you know, and you're Nikki and Ken's child, and things were very, very tense and weird in my childhood, and I've had a certain biography, and I have that the citizenship of humanity also, and that's very hard. That doesn't work for me a lot of the time, and I have these tiny control issues, and I would like to kind of get whip people into shape. I have a lot of ideas of how other people should behave and how much happier I think we all would be if people right. corrected their behavior slightly. And, um, and at the same time, I know that I'm not in charge of anything except, you know, taking care of the animals. But it doesn't create a tension so much as I have a really, because of recovery, because I've been clean and sober and working on this black belt codependency for almost 30 years, I write about stuff that I'm positive you experience also. The stuff I write about is really universal. That we, Like that book of welcome that I wrote for the late, last book. None of, no one that I would ever want to spend time with felt welcomed as a child or felt that they were good enough. We were super high achievers or we dropped out and, and um, we, we created a whole reality around our differentness. And, um, and now I have a tremendous sympathy for the, pa- the fact that even Everyone, I kind of draw the line at Dick Cheney, but that's because I'm a <laughs> terrible, terrible Christian. I'm the first to admit that. Everybody is scared some of the time. And everybody, by the time you're 30, has lost someone they couldn't live without. Yeah. And everyone had, almost everyone I know, had pretty terrifying um, childhoods and pretty scary experiences on the schoolyard. For sure. With being bullied, being less than, feeling different than, you know, f- having zero self-esteem and this raging narcissism at the same time, speaking of tension. 
you know, and Jesus doesn't say, um, you know, ev could everybody please try to be more perfect? Jesus just says, you know, I get it. And, and, and it's like that my righteousness is not in, Jesus isn't trying to get me to be more righteous. Jesus is saying to me, I'm the shepherd and I got it. And, he, and the Father gave it to me, and I gave it to you. I'm giving it to you. All you have to do is say, okay, Yeah. what do I do now? Well, go to the health food store, flirt with the old people. See those thirsty people there? Go get them some water. Go buy six cold waters and give them to the homeless. That's what I have my Sunday school teenagers do, is to buy six packs of cold water and to distribute them that day. So I keep things very simple, but I don't think I'm supposed to figure out how to get more righteous. Mm -hmm. I'm about as screwed up and worried and self-centered as you could be. And I'm also a total do-gooder. And my life is about service and about serving God and about taking care of my brothers and sisters. Some days go better than others. As Tom said 25 years ago, some days are just too long. It doesn't matter how close to God you're feeling or what a good do a worker bee you're being. Mm -hmm. It's just a long day and it'll be great to get in bed with a book, period. <laughs> so. One of the things I heard in, in early recovery was you can always start the day over. Mm -hmm. And I translated that into meaning go back to bed. <laughs> and I have done that. Not, not often, but there have been times I've been so baffled by 2 p.m. and I did not know what else to do. And I just went back to bed for a while. Mm -hmm. And then you start over again, you know. Mm -hmm. And, and um, who is it? I guess, again, C.S. Lewis, whom, who helps me a lot. Uh, relying on God has to begin all over again every day mm -hmm. as if nothing had yet been done. Mm -hmm. You got to keep it fresh. Right. Mm -hmm. You got to keep it fresh. And sometimes that freshness is because you're, you're still bleeding and, and they just put out the fire. You know, it, it's that fresh. And, and uh, that vulnerability... Um, builds a community. Mm -hmm. it, it's very affirming and it gets you out of your isolation mm -hmm. as you hear people talk from positions of, of brokenness. I think Rumi says that it's through the broken places the light shines through. Mm -hmm. And to be able to talk about the broken places, which happens a lot in recovery world. Well, this is applicable, applicable not just for recovery people, it's for anybody. It's humanity. It's, it's humanity. life. It's life. Yeah. But drunks, drunks and junkies can sometimes talk about it more clearly yes. than ordained clergy. <laughs> yes. You know? Yes. Because ordained clergy are supposed to be role models for countless millions. In, but it's much more of a relief to be a warning for countless millions, mm -hmm. you know? Have you read Spirituality of Imperfection? Perfect book. It is a perfect book. Uh, Jim Harbaugh and I said when that book first came out, this is the book we wish we wrote yeah. if we were more organized. <laughs> uh, but it talks precisely about that. It's the brokenness and the wearing out and the, and the reality of it, you right. know. And it's, it's learning how to talk in paradoxes. It's the joy of needing help. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not the shame of needing help, mm -hmm. which is a different tone, you know. I'm working at... Um, the Newman Center, so the Catholic undergraduate ministry at the University of Michigan, and I'm forever railing on their fight song because it's "Leaders in the Best." Mm. It's one of the where are the leaders in the best, right? And take no prisoner, shoot the wounded. Yeah, we're the sometime, best. sometime around October is when the leaders in the best realize that if they were all in the type five percent of their classes 
and now they're all in the same school. We can't all still be in the top 5%. And, right. and, you, and honestly, that, is, that tends to be the moment you've, a lot of these students for the first time. But that's the moment of breaking, I mean, it's not, it's not a total rock bottom, but it's that moment of, I can't be the top of my engineering class or whatever. And then they seem to, they develop an openness that allows God to work in their lives. Or a deadly competition. Or a desperation. Or they have to start lying. Well, yeah, you, know, you, you, which, get, you, well, you get every coping oh, mechanism yeah, 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 you can yeah, yeah, think yeah, yeah, of yeah, that yeah. shows up. Yeah. And you're, you know, but is there that, can they be there for that moment of, you know, the prayers, help, like I don't know anymore. Maybe, should I be a doctor or should I, you know? I'll tell you the most important thing Tom taught me, and this is 20 some years ago. He said the five rules of being a grown up are, you must not have anything wrong with you or anything different about you. The second rule is, if you have something wrong with you or different about you, you really need to correct it. Fast. You need to be able to pass under all circumstances. Third rule is, if you, do, if you can't correct it or change it in any way, you should just pretend that you have. It's not, it's not a problem anymore. Good news. The fourth rule is that you can't even pretend not to have corrected the situation. You should just not show up, because it's very painful for the rest of us to see you in your current condition. And the fifth rule is, if you're going to insist on showing up, you should have the decency to be ashamed. <laughs> and that's what every single one of us is up against, because every single one of us is different and unique and fearfully and wonderfully made. And we know it. We know it. We grok it by about four that we're different. And, that, and of course, what we do with that, with the shame of childhood, is we think that everybody else here got the owner's manual and that they pass it out in first grade the day that you were home with chicken pox. Yes. And everybody else actually knows how to have self-esteem and a kind of mild euphoria most of the time. And you alone are a complete bizarre loser. But um, so getting over the shame is like the, the work. I always say that this is forgiveness school and I am here healing this toxic shame. You know, to be a woman is to have institutionalized shame about the body, right? And that you're really pretty disgusting, you know, if you listen to the voices of childhood and advertising. Right. And, um, and so to get over that as a radical act and to go, you know what? That's not my understanding. <laughs> uh, is, is just about the most profound work. And for me, where all of my missionary work has begun is saying, I, I have it too, we, 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 all have it. we all have it. Which is why I think a lot of your books are very universal or people really resonate with it, right? And why they, mm -hmm. they're so attracted to it. It's like, yeah, that's me. I can relate mm -hmm. to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The great truth that Gerald May writes about in uh, Simply Sane, one of the great books, um, The Spirituality of Mental Health, is that self-acceptance is freedom. Mm -hmm. yeah. Self-acceptance is freedom. If you can accept and be kind to the way you're wired, mm -hmm. you can have a life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can say yes to some things and no to some things, but this really is how I'm wired. If you try to change the wiring, you become crazy and dangerous. Mm -hmm. There is a great freedom with breathing the air that's mine, you know, instead of the air that could have been mine if only I were better. When we were talking about that... Um, I was telling him that there was a passage in, in Small Victories, reading through it, where you're talking about forgiveness of someone else. So I was reading through that, and you were talking about all the projections you had put on this other person and all the uh -huh. issues. You, and I'm so I'm reading that, and thank God it was uh, I'm reading on my Kindle, which is what prevented me from throwing it against the wall because I was so pissed uh -huh. to read that passage because I had just gone through like what I considered my worst day at work, and I had had this 
roaring fight with someone I was working with and, and everything they did was wrong and I, I had been projecting things on, on them for like a whole year-ish. Year. We're talking about that desperation moment too. I felt and the, reading that and noticing that and you were talking about your experience of it and I was I, and I didn't want to hear it. God, I did I not want to hear it. I wanted to chuck the book across the mm -hmm. room and I thought to myself, well, I can't afford another Kindle so I can't throw it. But that, that sense of resisting, the, the sense that we need help, resisting that moment of desperation, I, mm -hmm. you go through it. For me in that story, it, it had to do with thinking that this woman was making me crazy and judging me and um, for not being thin enough or not being this or having enough money or whatever. And I had to come to that terrible truth, which I believe is the root of forgiveness, which is that it was me. And I was projecting it out there. I was trying to get her to carry the backpack of judgment because my own self-loathing is so excruciating. I'm 61 and I've probably had it 59 of those years. 58 of those years. And so it's about realizing that we try to get people to carry our, our crimes and our failings and we project it and the insight will follow. I'm gonna call Tom and I'm gonna say, what am I gonna do in the face of what's happening in Baltimore? I'm going crazy. The racism of my country, of my people. And Tom will say, I would have a really big glass of water and then I would go pick up litter. And I'll go, oh, okay. <laughs> because I'll take the action and I'll keep my side of the street clean. What can I do to get forgiveness with this woman that I think is judging me and has, and has all these feelings about me that are negative? In total love, I can say, oh, Annie, it's okay. Of course you feel that way about yourself. You got it from your parents. You got it from the culture. You got all this stuff about how gross women are and women's bodies and women's emotionalness and, um, and vulnerability, how, how in, in this culture vulnerability is something to be ashamed of. Fake it, fake it, fake it. And so when you stop faking it, you go, oh, it's me. It's me that's so afraid. It's me that's so afraid of people. It's me that thinks I'm better than everybody else. Then you can start to deal with it. I can take an action of forgiveness, which is to make myself a cup of tea and to sit down with a new New Yorker and to go, you know what? I can mother myself, as it were, and I can go, you know what? We're going to have cashews and a cup of tea and, the, and last week's New Yorker, and that is going to be self-communion instead of this graft mm. rejection of my own screwed-up, sad self. You know, and that's where the buck ends, is how I'm going to be in terms of whether I'm going to say to myself with tenderness, it's really okay, we're all the same. Smeads would say too, I mean, if I forgive you, it's not for your sake, it's for my sake. It's for my sake, right. Because it's not about your being worthy of forgiveness or anybody being worthy of forgiveness. The risen Christ goes to the Twelve on the first day of the resurrection, says peace, and then gives the power to forgive, or the encouragement to forgive, you know. And, and I know in, in uh, some very narrow Roman Catholic circle, oh, priests can forgive sins, not because of this. But it's not just to the ordained clergy. If there's gonna be peace, there has to be forgiveness. Mm -hmm. they, they're intimately connected. And I have to learn how to let go of the gripes and the grudges and the resentments. Mm -hmm. And one-on-one, um, one-on-one, -on -one, one -on -one, and to do it with the human beings who are with me, uh, not the abstractions of things that are way out there, because that's what makes us crazy. Mm -hmm. um, like, and also to yourself. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, like there's I, that old cliche in recovery that, that um, 
resentment is like drinking the rat poison and waiting for the rat to, to die. The other person to and, die, yeah. For the other person yeah. to die. Yeah. And you realize the insanity of not forgiving because you're the person that is being that has become toxic and that you're completely toxic because you won't forgive. You're the jailer. You're jailed. You're the jailed jailer. Mm. And that the way out is to say, okay, fine. Amnesty. This is how I forgive yeah. people. I go, okay, fine. <laughs> fine. And Amnesty. it's enough. It's enough. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Instead of the scorekeeping. Yes. Measuring and scorekeeping and, and my, my vindication. I'm related to someone who keeps score. And... Um, uh, if anything explodes or happens or falls down, the score is announced to the group. You know, 800 times this happened, and and there's never uh, forgiveness erasure or or letting go of it. You have to hold on to it because it's who you are. I am who I hate. I am who I'm opposed to. It's a very negative energy, and it kills you. You wrote about your experiences of um, spending a year on Match.com, mm -hmm. right? Um, how's that going for you? Well, that was a while ago, <laughs> and um, I. And you know, there's there's now there's there's Tinder, there's other these other like dating sites. Uh -huh. and, yeah, you know. I'm really. I think out most of, of them are very fast, though. They're uh -huh. dating with a small d. I mean, well, it, it's true. It seems to be done in a gallop. Mm -hmm. Look, you know, there's different there's different definitions of dating now. Mm -hmm. like, I found out, you know. It's not well, just Tom and I are old. We're old. Right? So what we think of is that you go to the soda shop, <laughs> right? That's and you right. share a, and you have a, a sarsaparilla. You have That's a sarsaparilla with and you share the and you cup. Share it. You have That's two right. straws and one That's soda. Right. That's intimacy. But that's intimacy. Um, well, now you now you, you pull up someone's profile on your phone right, and you right. swipe swipe. And oh, I, you do? No, see, so I don't I've, know how to swipe anything. I've been sitting with yeah. students, and they're literally, they're looking at the people that have come up in their profile. And, and this is the, I think this is the dangerous, subtle thing. They Sometimes they joke about it, but I don't think they get the reality of what's going on. They're judging just based on a oh. quick look. And so you're oh. swiping yes or people swiping get no. Oh, I've never even shame. heard of that. So, yeah. You know, I'm so unmechanical. I think Tom is even worse. But I have so lack of skill with any, anything. And I don't mean this pejoratively. It's just true that my son takes stuff away from me. And he says, I hate to watch you try to do things, you know. <laughs> so I can do an iPad. And um, I have a BlackBerry. I don't even have an iPhone. But like, I'll, I'll tell you the good thing about Match. Um, was that it's much easier to date when you're drinking. Let's just call call it as it is. Is that if you've had the nice beverage and then you're with a guy and you're both having the beverage, then pretty soon you just go to some one person's home and um, maybe, I don't know, put on TV or something, but you're together drunk in someone's house. So, But if you're sober, it's a little bit more complicated. And when you're an older woman, it's a little bit more complicated because men that are my age might not want to have a, a, you know, they might want someone who's like in their 20s instead of their 60s, say hypothetically, the random occasional man may want someone younger. But I didn't know how to date because I just kept ending up with the next person that I was clearly going to be with. And I, I got sober. 29 years ago, and um, and the it, it was kind of like Mr. Magoo crossing at the apart the high rises where the girder would appear, and the next girder would be there. I go, oh, for Pete's sake, you know, and I'd be with this person, I'd be with that person. Had a child with one of them, and we were only together three months, you know. And so with Match.com, it taught me how to do the hardest thing on earth which is to have a cup of coffee with somebody that you don't know and get to know them a little bit. And as a woman who has struggled with um, 
feelings of inadequacy because I don't look as much like a Kardashian as I had hoped um, or Robin Wright. Um, to sit there and not to worry about how, what he makes of me, whether mm -hmm. he thinks I'm cute enough or young enough or, or kicky enough, but instead to say, how does this make me feel? Do I feel worried? Do I feel, is it easy to be with him? Does he have a nice sense of humor? If not, Match.com taught me how to get in and get out in 45 minutes or an hour to stand up and to shake hands, not to have to go home with him or have children or get married later that day. So um, that's one of the blessings of sobriety, too, is how rarely you have to get married. But, um, <laughs> but it taught me how to date. It taught me how to bear if the guy didn't seem to want to go out again. It taught me how to help him understand that I wasn't going to go out with him again. And it taught me the hardest work we do of of limbo, mm. you know, and I've, I've heard um, that maturity is learning to live with unresolved problems, you know, and when you are dating, you've been out a few times and you don't know, well, this guy doesn't believe in God, that's okay, but if he's like kind of appalled by my Christianity, not so much, mm -hmm. right? And so it taught me how to know um, how I felt about the scariest of all species, which is straight white men, you know, and how to be with them without needing for them to feel good about me, to be with them without needing to help them feel good about their lives, which has always been my focus. Um, as a child of an alcoholic, I learned how to make men feel really good about the catastrophes they were wreaking on their families. And, um, and, I, and, and dating, I, taught, I thought, if somebody made me a little tense, feel a little bit on edge, I thought, you know what? Been there, done that, kind of old, and my knees hurt, and my vision's failing, and I don't think this is what I'm looking for. But thanks for the coffee, you know? <laughs> yeah, life is too short. Life yeah. is too short. I don't know whether I have 20 good years left or whether later today, you know, I have a cerebral accident. But it's not going to be long enough to be with a man who makes me have those old feelings of being afraid and feeling small. Mm. I want someone who's going to help me feel big and juicy. And big and juicy is scary for some men. I have a big, juicy public life, and there's no way around that. How do, how do you feel about Pope Francis? Well, we love, the, uh, you know, I'm, I don't have a, a direct relationship with the Pope, but I am crazy about the Pope. It always fascinates me how many Catholics are, are so oh enamored with him. Oh my God, it's like, to me, Francis is a miracle. Mm. You know, Francisco, to come into this um, arena of this world of such ugliness and strife and judgment and, and to take over and to say that was not when, that was then. And now what I would love for everyone to do is try to breathe. Let's open our hearts to one another. Let's do what Jesus said, which was let's take... I have an idea, Francis says, let's take care of the really poor. Let's make us ever mindful of the needs of the suffering. And, and I love this thing that he's doing now of um, mindfulness around the environment. It's so provocative. You've got to love that in a guy. I am thrilled by Francis. I think I understand how he thinks. We were so shocked, because this has never happened before, to have a Jesuit Pope, and we didn't know what that meant. Is this a really good idea, or is this a really bad idea? Mm -hmm. His graciousness, his humility, his asking for prayers, his washing feet, you know, of, of not just uh, men who are going to be ordained priests, but young women, women girl persons who are Muslim <laughs> in jail. Yeah. You know, I just think that just that alone was worth 
you know, nine encyclical letters on what everything meant. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and an image is uh, uh, so powerful there. I think he really has um, the heart of Christ. I mean, I really do. I think this is uh, um, his, his years of meditation and prayer and service have rubbed off and it shows. The job he has been given is to try to clean out the Aegean stables. Mm -hmm. you know? And there's just all kinds of, of wreckage and, and stratification and calcification Hatred. And, and arrogance. Let's wash that out. And, um, you know, God bless Pope Francis. Did you get a chance to see the, the bull where he an announced the year of mercy? He's basically talking about what you're, you're saying. He's like, we've for so long focused on justice. And, and he said, and this is good. We said, without mercy, it's, it means nothing. Mm -hmm. God's justice never shows up without, at the same very moment, the mercy. Mm -hmm. it's a, you're never going to measure up. It's no problem. It doesn't mm -hmm. bother me. He's a gentle and lovely presence. Mm -hmm. Great face. Just mm -hmm. a great face. face. I met him last summer, and he, you know, people say this all the time when they meet him. Uh, he's right with you. Mm -hmm. You know, no matter how short of a time he's with you, he's present, and mm -hmm. you feel it. He's mm -hmm. so present, and mm -hmm. it's, it's rare with somebody of that stature, mm -hmm. you know, to be able to just be there with you. Mm -hmm. It's forty-one seconds. We have a video of it. Uh -huh, uh -huh, and uh -huh. It's just wonderful. You've yeah. timed it. Oh, there's a video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a video. There's a video. I've it's seen it. Seconds. Yeah. So one of the things I did uh, on my Facebook was ask people, I, I told people, oh, I'm going to be having a conversation with uh, Anne Lamott. Anybody want to ask any questions? Wh what book do you gift the most? What book do I gift the most? Wow. I give away a lot of copies of Mary Oliver poems. <laughs> okay. How do you introduce people to God in conversations? I try not to. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, people, I, I often will give people either help, thank, wow, or, or small victories, because, you know, it's every single thing I know, and it's not very much, but it's sort of a way that I think would, it, it would be not oppressive to, to read about God in some of those essays. Yeah, I let them bring it up rather than me yeah, bringing it up exactly for them, right. you know. I mean, right. I, don't, I don't think going door to door announcing the good news helps. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's never helped me when people have done it to me. Yeah. Uh, what advice would you give your 30-year-old self? To my 30-year-old self, um, this is the body you were born with. This body is going to look like itself the entire time you're here. And all you can do is, is, is love it and nourish it and rub lotions into your thighs. It's not going to change mm -hmm. dramatically. This way. <laughs>